that as a podcast. You can go to uh, Apple Music, uh, Apple Podcasts, excuse me, uh, look for Abundant Life uh, Assembly, and you'll find us there. Um, but also you can link to it. Um, you can find us on the website as well, AbundantLifeAG.net. Uh, we have a ton of resources. We're updating a, a bunch of things. Um, and as crisis might come to us here in our county, if you're local to the Enterprise Oregon area, uh, would encourage you to check out the website. If there is a need that you become aware of for you or for uh, someone around you, we actually have a form you can fill out and that'll let us know. Um, and then we can uh, do our best to meet those needs. And as uh, a ministry association, the Wallawa County Ministerial Association uh, is a collection of churches here in the county that are working together to meet needs as they come. And so uh, if you are in need, you please reach out. Um, and and we will do our best to uh, meet you where you're at and help you. And it, it not it's not limited to just Christians, just anybody who has need. Um, we want to be a service. So let's get started. Um, turn with me. I hope you have a Bible with you. Uh, we're going to look at Second Samuel. And uh, we are in the season known as Lent. Lent is where. We are in several weeks of preparation before Easter. Often this is a time of uh, prayer. It is uh, almsgiving to the poor. It is a time of fasting. And, uh, and I'll talk some more about fasting later. But in this whole concept of uh, preparing uh, for the resurrection of Jesus, it's the high point of the Christian year where we're celebrating all that Jesus has done for us. And... At the same time, though, one thing that I've noticed is that around the world, um, people are starting to pray more, which is great, right? What I've noticed, though, is the theme of the prayer, that when people are praying, they're asking God to fix the circumstances. And I think it's imperative that we understand that there's always something underlying the circumstances of our lives. And our hearts are not totally pure. Our motives are not totally pure. And we're going to see that played out in the scriptures this morning. So 2 Samuel chapter 11. You may be familiar with a guy named David. He was a king of God's people. His predecessor had started off all right in following God, but really became self-absorbed. David's anointed as king over all the people uh, early in his life as a, a young man. Um, it's after he's anointed as king that he actually defeats Goliath. So he was the anointed king when he slays the giant, but nobody knew it. Um, and it, kind of an interesting little nuance there. Uh, God has his hand on David and blesses him immensely uh, as he is uh, maturing. Uh, he eventually becomes king. Uh, has great success in defeating the enemies around him. And we pick up this story in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So normally the king would go out with his army, and in this case, he didn't. He sends his armies out ahead of him, and he hangs out at home where he is idle. Verse 2, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lied with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, and said, I am with child. So you got the king who ought to be out at war with his men. Instead, he's home and he's bored. So he's taking a walk on the rooftop at night. And what he discovers is 
his eyes wandering. And he sees a woman bathing. He's, I would say, overcome with the sight of her. He has her brought to him, and he sleeps with her. And she becomes pregnant. And so David, in this one night, has seen someone taken her to himself, committed adultery, because she was a married woman. And she gets pregnant. Well, what's he going to do? <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 6, Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So go get her husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house, where all the servants of his, with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his own house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his own house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. What an honorable man. So Uriah has come from the battlefield. He's been away from his wife, from his family for a while. Um, and he, as he comes home, he actually sleeps with the servants at the king's house uh, at the doors. And he doesn't go home to his wife. Why should I enjoy luxury and the comforts of my own wife when my friends are sleeping in tents in the middle of a war and battle? Well, this creates a problem for David, doesn't it? Because, see, David had brought Uriah back home. He wanted him to go to his wife Bathsheba spend the night with her, then it could easily be misconstrued that, well, Uriah came home and his wife got pregnant. But now David's plan didn't work. So verse 12, what's David going to do? David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he David made Uriah drunk. And at evening he went out and lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord. He did not go down to his house. So even getting having someone get him drunk, he still didn't go down. He had that much integrity. Verse 14, In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the battle where the battle is hottest and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there would be valiant men. Then the men of the city came out, fought with Joab. Some of the people of the servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittite died also. So David gives Uriah, hey, thanks for coming. Thanks for the report. I'm going to send you back. I have a letter for you. Take this to the captain. Take this to my general. Take it to Joab. So Uriah is carrying his very own death sentence back to the military leader. Joab receives the letter, follows it, puts Uriah right up at the city wall when they attack the city. And not only Uriah, but many others die. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, verse 19, and, cha and charged the messenger, saying, When you finish telling the matters of the war of the kings, or to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath arises and he says to you, Why did you approach so near the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerebesheth? 
Sorry, that's a hard one. Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Verse 22, so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had said by him. The messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us and came out to fight us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. As a side note, I think it's funny. The messenger, knowing that the the king is going to get upset and there's some secret code here going on between Joab and the king, the, the servant doesn't even wait. This messenger, he's no dummy. He's like, why would I wait for the king to get angry? I'm just going to go right to the punchline. Uriah is dead. Verse 25. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. So King David says, Don't worry about it, Joab. You're doing a good job. Keep up the good work. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. King David had been given success. He sends his armies to go to war without him. And in his idleness, he was tempted by his own evil desires. He followed through with those things, committed the sin of adultery, and then he lied another sin to cover it up. He tried to hide his sin by having Uriah go and sleep with his own wife and then the child could be believed to be his. And then when that didn't work, he got him drunk and tried again. When that didn't work, he had him murdered. Yes, he died in battle, but essentially King David, who in the Bible refers to as a man after God's own heart, the one who wrote the Psalms, not only has he committed adultery and lied and deceived, but he's also murdered a man, an innocent man who was fighting for him. This is incredible. But this is what happens in sin. In fact, in the book of James, it describes what happens to us in our sin. James chapter 1, verse 12. <coughs> Excuse me. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say that when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one, verse 14 of James chapter 1. This is really important. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now, in this case, it would appear that it was Uriah's death, but actually it's David's death, and we'll see why in just a moment. But see, regardless of where you are and what things you're facing, there is an enemy of our souls called the devil. And he is described as... Uh, prowling around like a lion, looking for whom he may devour. And so there's going to be temptation that comes before us. But notice that James says that our, that temptation, that we're drawn away and enticed by our own desires. See, you don't even need the devil to show up. We give him way too much credit. Most of the time, it's just our own sinfulness, the, the sin of our flesh that we inherited from generations past, that we just grow up naturally into wanting to fulfill our own pleasures apart from God's way. And so, David has done this. 
He wanted something, he took it, and then he tried to cover it up. Speaking of covering up, uh, Gabriel, could you adjust the camera here? I have something here that I want to show you. I better move this out of the way. Can you see this table? You can scroll up or down. Is it in the shot now? Okay. So I brought something special this morning. Oh gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this. <coughs> this is dog poop from this morning. And I put it on a plate for you. Uh, is that in the frame there? So um, got some straw in it. Oh my gosh. It stinks really bad. <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> okay. So why do I have dog poop on the podium in church? <laughs> it's a good question. Huh. I might have to put the plastic back on top of it because it really stinks. Okay, so I worked in restoration and remodel years ago. And there was a house that they, a candle had caught fire uh, to the countertop, smoked the whole place out. We had to go into this house and tear out everything that was damaged. Um, they had this brown carpet through the living room. The fire had been back in the, um, the master, bedroom, uh, master bathroom. And so we came into this house and, and said, well, there's going to be smoke damage in the carpet. So we have to pull the carpet for the, all of this into the house. Uh, it was my job to be pulling up the carpet. Others were taking care of some of the fire damage in the bathroom. So as I pulled the carpet back, I realized that it was not originally a brown carpet. It was teal green. And it looked brown. And when we peeled the carpeting back, underneath revealed all of the stain marks from the dog that had been peeing everywhere and pooping everywhere in this house. In fact, it was so bad that we had to actually tear up the subfloor as well. Their back door would not open because the dog had peed in front of that door so many times that the subfloor had swelled so much, an inch and a half thick. It started three quarters of an inch. It had doubled in volume, and the door could not open for getting stuck on the urine-saturated particle board. That is disgusting, folks. <laughs> and I'm in the middle of doing this work. Uh, we've cut carpet. We're peeling things back. I'm in a Tyvek or I don't think I had Tyvek suit at that point because um, we didn't realize what we were really getting into. Um, the Tyvek suit came later when we had to cut all the subfloor out. And so, but I've got a respirator on. The, the house smells horrid. The whole place. And we, didn't, we, we discovered the color of the carpet when we moved the couch out and saw that the carpet was actually this. I guess it was a mint green would probably be a better way to put it. Um, a, a light mint green, and it looked, I would have sworn it was a brown mottled carpet. I had no idea that the whole thing was actually urine and poop from the dog. I'm in this house, and uh, the owner's uh, sister is there. Um, they were an older couple, um, not elderly, very, uh, very strong. The guy was a logger. Um, but just older than I was. I was probably 20-something at the time. So I'm doing this work. I, I haul some garbage out. I come back in, and this is what I found. This is why I have poop on the stage. I find a pile of dog poop, and I'm in the middle. I just tore the carpet out, and the section of carpet I haven't removed yet, the dog has pooped in the dining room, living room. There's like a great room, and, and there's poop right there. And this lady has been sitting at the dining table, smoking, and watching me, and reading the paper. So, she's, she's got the paper up, so she hadn't seen that the dog's pooped. I don't know how she didn't smell it, but 
that's the situation. So I go, oh, excuse me, ma'am. Um, I don't know if you noticed, uh, or but the, the dog had an accident. And she goes, oh, okay, I'll take care of it. So she takes some of the newspaper. And I'm thinking, okay, she's going to pick up the poop with the newspaper. She goes over to the dog poop and does this. Goes back and sits again at the table and continues to smoke and read the rest of the newspaper. I don't think I could ever accurately portray what I was feeling in that moment. <laughs> because now for the rest of the day, not only do I have all of these particulates from urine and, and the junk that I'm hauling out, but I am walking around dog poop for the rest of the day. All she did was put a piece of newspaper over it. That is not how you deal with dog poop in the house. But that's how we deal with sin, isn't it? We have this ugly pile of sin in our hearts, and we do what David did. We just put a piece of newspaper over it. We justify it. We cover it up. We look for a way to hide our sinfulness. David thinks he's gotten away with it. Uriah's dead. Bathsheba's my wife. I've covered over my sin. Hey, everything's hunky-dory. Nobody will ever know. You know, hey, we got married. She had a baby right away. No one will suspect. But it says God was displeased. Chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lie on his own chest. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd and prepare one for the wayfarer, wayfaring man who had come to him, but instead took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against this man and he said to Nathan the prophet, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are that man. Imagine how David felt in that moment. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. You, for you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I think we could pause here. We don't know 
how David's repentance and how he processed the revelation of his own sin. We don't know the timeline, but we do know some of how he actually did the processing of it because he records it in Psalm. Psalm 51. You can turn there. Psalm 51, a prayer of repentance to the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is right here in this moment. This is David's prayer. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil thing in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you you do not desire sacrifice or else I give it. You don't delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the wall of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And then they shall offer bowls on your altar. David is wrecked by the confrontation that he's had. Nathan has come and pointed the finger and said, you're that man. And I believe the Holy Spirit of God wants to say to all of us across the world, you're that man. That each of us has hidden sin in our heart. We know what's under here. You saw it. And if you were in the room, you wouldn't be able to deny it because you could smell it. But many of us, we have been crying out to God. We've been praying for healing, for salvation from a virus or from some other thing. Salvation from a bankruptcy or losing our business or our job. Or we're worried about paying our mortgages. And we have all of these concerns. And yet we have not dealt with the underlying issue. That we have sin in our lives. And that God will not remove his hand of correction in order to change the circumstances if you will not remove the sin from your life. This is a call to repentance. And the topic today is to pray. And so our prayer needs to be one of confession and repentance of our sin. We need to confess our sin. So to confess is simply to admit, I am a sinner. Just as King David did, I have sinned against the Lord, he said. And then he prays. And he prays this prayer out of Psalm 51. Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit. Don't take your spirit from me. Why? Because God has every right to do it. That if we are living in sin, if we are hiding sin in our lives, God has every right and prerogative to bring upon us any correction that he sees fit. And I feel like at this time, there are Christians all over the world who are crying out for mercy from God, 
but they haven't received the grace of God, which is salvation. Because what they're doing is they're actually spitting in the face of Jesus. They're accepting a, a form of godliness, but denying the power of God in their lives. Because they just covered over sinful things. They're okay with the fact that, well, I only cheated a little bit on my taxes. We only stretched the truth a little bit. I only, I only bent my numbers a little bit at work. Hey, you know, the shows I'm watching aren't that bad. As teenagers often told me when I was a youth pastor or when we, my wife and I were working in a children's home, I'm not listening to the words of the song. It's just the beat. I like the beat. We make all of these excuses to allow sin to remain in our lives, and it's just like that dog. Here, I'm going to gross you out again and remove this cover because we need to see sin for what it is. There's a pile of poop on the podium. <laughs> really? And there's poop in our lives. There's garbage that we are allowing. And then we cry out to God, Oh, Lord, heal our nation. God's not going to heal our nation. He will not heal our land unless we follow what his word says to do. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, I think it gives a very clear picture. If my people, who are called by my name, God says, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. Then I'll forgive their sin. Then I will heal their, heal their land. We want the healing without the confession. We don't want to give up nothing. I don't want to die to myself. I want all of these things to be for me, for my pleasure. I am amazed at how many Christians have never even fasted a single meal to take that time to pray and seek God. Fasting was something that Jesus did. It's something his disciples did after he was crucified and resurrected. It's something that you and I should be doing as a spiritual discipline. We should be giving up of our own pleasures. And frankly, fasting has been one of the best things in my life that has helped me to see how selfish I really am and that there's still sin rooted in this heart that God wants to deal with. And these last two weeks have been some of the hardest, heartbreaking times for me. Because God is showing me this that's still in me. And until we hate, until we hate our sin, we'll never be set free. We'll never experience the peace of God in our lives. We have to look at it. We have to look at how depraved we really are. And we have to cry out to God for mercy. And you might think that the story's over. Oh, yes, David, King David. He's a man after God's own heart. He just prays, Lord, forgive me. And all of it goes away. Not so. Nathan says to David in verse, the second part of 13, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Remember what we read in James? That sin leads to death. God was going to kill David for his sin. And the prophet says that to David, you won't die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. And Nathan departed to his house. So the consequence of David's sin is that this child is going to die. His son. Born out of adultery. Sin is serious, folks. It requires a blood punishment. The wages of sin is death. It says in Romans. 
And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. The child became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So in his anguish, he's going without food, and he's praying, calling out to God for mercy and grace. So the elders of the house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not. He did not eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. They're assuming that David is at the point where in his grief he could do something drastic. When David saw that the servants were whispering, David perceived that his son was dead. Therefore David went to his servants and said, Is the child dead? And they said, He's dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. We have no concept. The majority of us have no concept of this sort of worship. His son was just taken from him as a consequence to his sin. And he worshipped God. So he went in, worshipped. Then he went to his house. And when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child dies, you get up and eat? And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me? That the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. See, David had an eternal perspective, and he recognized that his son died in innocence, that he would be with God. And David had humbled himself. He prayed. He sought God's face. He turned from his wicked ways, and he knew that God would accept his repentant heart and that he and his son would be together again someday in the presence of God. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. It was her son that she lost too. And in time, went into her and lie with her, and she bore a son, called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved Solomon and sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. And so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. And you might think, what a terrible consequence. But if you don't continue reading the story, you don't realize that there's actually more to the consequences. Eventually, King David's son Absalom follows through and fulfills the thing the prophet Nathan said. Absalom, David's son, commits treason, rises up against his father, steals the throne, and when he is in his father's palace, David on the run. Absalom asks his advisors what he should do, and the advisors say, go and sleep with your father's concubines. So everything that God spoke to David came to pass. There was treachery, an enemy within his own house. His wives were given over. And in fact, all the way down to this final statement that the secret that David's sin was, would be seen by all Israel. Absalom slept with those concubines on the roof of the palace for everyone to see. See, the consequences of sin are dire. And we think, how unfair of God. Who are we to judge God? Who are we in our pride and arrogance to think that we know better, that I'm not deserving of this, Take a look at yourself. Take a look at your sin. 
face it head on, and compare it to holiness. Something I considered doing and decided not to, but if I were to take a toothpick and poke it into this dog excrement and then swizzle that stick in my water cup, who would be willing to drink it? See, it doesn't matter that it's a little sin in your sight. It's still sin. It's still filthy. And we, if we're going to come into the presence of a holy God where there's no spot, no wrinkle, no sin whatsoever, we are supposed to be holy. And God desires a bride, the church, to be a holy bride that can come in spotless to that wedding banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the celebration in heaven after Jesus' return. And and if you are hiding sin in your life, you won't make it. See, David had sinned. The consequences of his sin remained, but his sin was forgiven. See, we we miss this all the time. We think that if I confess my sin, then God's going to forgive me, and then I won't have to face any consequences. No, the consequences will remain. you still got to live with the consequences. But your sin will be forgiven, and it won't be held against you on the day of judgment. This is what I feel is the most important message of our day. That as we are crying out to God, we have to first start with repentance. Because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the verse continues, is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so we have to confess our sin, humble ourselves like David did, fast and pray and seek his face and ask, perhaps perhaps God will be gracious. And we won't have some of the consequences that are due. How's the church like David? Many in the church have been idle. We've been concerned with our own comfort and our own pleasures. We have been like David in that we've indulged in sin and been permissive of it. And we've covered over it and made excuses for the things that are in our lives that we know in our souls God is not pleased with. We've been like David because we condone and conceal evil in our midst. There might be sin in the church, in other people's lives, that we are just like, ah, well, that's just him. We permit anger. We permit uh, abuse in family situations. We are guilty of turning an eye to adultery and fornication. We've turned a blind eye to uh, compromise in all manner of things. The church is also like David in that right now, in this moment, we are being confronted with our sin. And if you be honest, like I've had to be honest these last couple of weeks, and take a moment of silence before God, He will show you the sin in your life. The question is, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to respond? Will we be like David? who will fall on the ground with our faces in the dirt and say, God, I have sinned against you and I need your forgiveness? Or will we puff up our chests and refuse to humble ourselves? I saw from our government as they were passing legislation to send checks to every American to try and curb this economic downturn a statement was made that there is nothing big enough to curb this, to stop the bleeding and begin the healing, except the government. The government's the only thing big enough, is what was said. And I was appalled. I was angry. I recorded a little uh, video immediately and tried to Posted, and fortunately, God prevented it from going through. How dare we 
be so arrogant as to think that the government can save us. How arrogant to think that I can save myself. And that's in me. It's in all of us. And I have to diligently seek God. And I have to intentionally humble myself so that I'm not humbled when the final day comes. I would much rather humble myself than for God to put me on my face. I'd rather start there. And then perhaps he'll lift me up. So my challenge for all of us around the world is to repent. To confess our sin before God and say, I'm a sinner. And we cry out to God for his forgiveness. Our challenge as a church community, and I would invite all who are watching, is to begin a fast starting this Wednesday, Wednesday, April 1st, through April 10th, 10 days of fasting. What we are striving for is a water-only fast. It's an extreme sort of fast. But I feel like the Lord has brought it to our attention and it is something that God is calling us into. Not to make ourselves spiritual because we want... It's not because we're spiritual that we're fasting. It's because we want to be. We want to be alive in the Spirit. We want to be in tune to God. And we want to recognize that the, the pleasures of, that my body and my mind and my spirit are searching for and longing for are actually temptations that lead me away from God. And so we're going to deny our bodies for 10 days. And we're going to seek God. We're going to confess our sin. We're going to pray for this world. And we're going to ask God to empower us with the power from the Holy Spirit that we might be able to minister effectively in these times. And we would pray for a revival that is greater than the world has ever seen. And I'd like to invite all of you to join us. So starting on the 1st, we'll go with no food, just water, for 10 days. And then it's very important that we come out of that fast appropriately. And so you cannot just eat a meal. You'll have to do just broth on Good Friday, April 10th for the evening. You can do cooked vegetables on Saturday. Um, But very, very careful coming out of this thing. And then we can have a, a celebration meal on Easter Sunday. And we will experience God in a way that we've never experienced him before. As we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. That's the invitation. Now, if you would like more details, feel free to reach out. Um, I have uh, a whole um, article on how to break our fast um, and and detailed instructions. It's very, very important that you don't um, just do this on your own. We're also going to be gathering to pray, um, maybe digitally and uh, and six feet away, <laughs> but uh, we'll be praying nightly. Um, and so stay tuned for details. We'll be including those on our Facebook page and website, AbundantLifeAG.net. So that's my challenge for us. And wherever you're watching, I would imagine many of us are watching uh, with someone else uh, in our family. And I would encourage you to take a time to confess your sins one to another. We've got to start somewhere. And so let's confess to each other. Confess, parents, to your children the ways that you've sinned. Children, confess to one another and to your parents. This is what I've done wrong. Husbands and wives, confess to one another. And if you're living in a situation that you know God is displeased with, then you have a choice to make. Will you continue in that? Or will you humble yourself and take the difficult road that leads to eternal life? For the gate is wide, the the road is wide that leads to destruction. But there's a narrow way that leads to life and few find it. Jesus said that. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin that we would not die in it. But as we see the garbage in our lives, 
and how detestable our sin is to you, that you would purify our hearts, Lord God. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Make us holy and pleasing before you and help us to seek your kingdom first. Give us courage to confess our sins to one another and we would be healed. May we follow through with what 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, that we, as your people, would humble ourselves. We pray, seek your face and turn from our wicked ways and you would hear from heaven. Lord God, forgive our sin and heal our lands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed day.